As we come to Mark chapter 3 this morning, we've seen Jesus doing ministry in the towns and the villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And the pattern of his ministry would be to go from village to village or town to town, and typically to go into the synagogue and to minister there in whatever way he could. Because his critics knew this was a familiar pattern of how Jesus would do things, a lot of times they came to the synagogue expecting that Jesus would show up if they knew he was in town. And this is the situation as we come to Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Jesus walked into the synagogue that Sabbath morning. We're cheered to know in our own vernacular, would say Jesus was a church-going man, liked to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. And as he walks into the, the synagogue on that Sabbath day, there's a man with a withered hand. And then there's another group of people probably sitting in the front row because according to the traditions of that day, the prominent men, whether they were residents or visitors, would all sit together in the front row, uh, usually wearing some kind of distinctive clothing that uh, identified them as being prestigious men in the world of religion. And as they sat there, they looked at Jesus and they looked at the man with the withered hand and they knew something. They knew Jesus wanted to do something about that man with the withered hand. Isn't that amazing that they made that connection? When you have to say, they had a lot of faith in Jesus, didn't they? They knew Jesus had the power to heal this man. They knew Jesus probably wanted to heal this man. And so they are filled with anticipation as the man with the need and the man who meets the need come together in the synagogue on that Sabbath morning. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it would be a great thing. Wouldn't everybody be excited if the man with the withered hand was healed that morning? Well, no, these critics of Jesus who watched him closely, they would disapprove. Not because they thought that the man who had a withered hand should stay that way, but because they thought it was wrong for Jesus to do this on the Sabbath day. Now, why would they think that's wrong? It wasn't because of what the Bible says. In nowhere, when you read the Bible, does it say that Jesus shouldn't do such a thing as heal a man who has a withered hand on the Sabbath day. But their religious traditions told them that this was work, and you shouldn't do work on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus shouldn't perform this healing. I guess it's all in how you define work. And they weren't defining work according to God's definition. They were defining work according to the definition of their own traditions. And so along this line of thinking, they would say back in that day, well, if you cut your finger on the Sabbath day, you can do something to stop the bleeding. You can put a bandage on it because you can prevent something from getting worse on the Sabbath day. But you couldn't put ointment on the cut because that promoted healing, and promoting healing is work, and you can't do work on the Sabbath day. So you can put a Band-Aid, but no Neosporin on the cut on the Sabbath day. That was their thinking, and they were bound in their traditions. Now, if you want to see how powerful traditions can bind people, look at it again there in verse 2, where it says, And they watched him closely. Now, normally you'd think that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? People watching Jesus closely. Don't we want to do that? 
I want to see Jesus closely. I want to watch him closely. But you see, if we are bound up in religious traditions, even our watching Jesus closely can be turned into a bad thing. Because look in the rest of verse 2. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Well, that's not a good reason to watch Jesus closely, is it? Looking for something to criticize in him, looking for something to accuse in Jesus. I think it is worth pointing out that somebody can watch Jesus closely, that they can know about Jesus, but yet not know him. And that can be a dangerous thing about coming to church. You know, you're doing something very dangerous this morning. You're hearing about Jesus. And all in all, it's a wonderful thing. But if you don't do anything with what you know about Jesus, if you watch him closely, but don't turn your heart towards him in love, you can leave here in worse condition than you came. And that was the state of these men here. They knew Jesus could heal. They knew Jesus wanted to heal. They knew Jesus was there that morning and they watched him closely. Yet you see that there's no heart of love, no heart of giving towards Jesus. So you see here, Jesus is in the midst of this situation and you wonder what's going to happen. How's it all going to work out? You feel a little tension rising here in the synagogue when the man with the withered hand is there and Jesus is there and the critics are there, right there, all sitting prominently in the first row. And if you notice here, verse 3, then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. I love this. Jesus called him out into a prominent place. He didn't have to. Many of us are so timid that maybe we would have said something like this to the man with the withered hand. Here's my card. Give me a call tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath day and I'll do something about that hand. Or how about this? You know, why don't you meet me around back where nobody else is and I'll just help you out right there. No, but Jesus said to the man, you step forward. I want this to be done in front of everybody. Say, no, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you know that you're going to make these men angry? That these critics of you, of yours, are going to walk away more angry than when they came in. And Jesus said, fine. You see, Jesus is deliberately looking for a way to offend their religious traditions. Religious traditions are a funny thing. Because we rarely recognize them in ourselves, but we very easily recognize them in others. You go into a church somewhere and say, well, boy, they're sure bound up in tradition here. But you know, some of us who perhaps come from a church tradition that prides itself on being an untraditional church tradition, <laughs> it's easy for us to be blind to our own traditions, our own customs, and how we can get bound up in them just as much as anybody else can get bound up in their traditions. Can I invite you to pray a dangerous prayer for your Christian life? Pray this prayer. Lord, If I've got traditions in my life that keep me from really knowing and following you, shatter those traditions. Offend those traditions in my life. That's a risky prayer, don't you think? But it's a good prayer. Because tradition can really bind us and take us away from being able to look at Jesus with real eyes of love. 
And so Jesus almost looked forward to the opportunity to offend these men's traditions. That's why he called the man step forward. And look at verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to give life, or excuse me, to save life or to kill? It's a brilliant question, isn't it? Jesus is essentially saying, How can there be a wrong day to do something good? How could it ever be wrong for me to heal this man on this day? I'm doing something good. And Jesus says, believe me, it's no work at all for me. It's not like I have to run 10 laps around the synagogue to make this happen. It's no work, friends. I'll just heal the man. I'm sure that when the crowd there at the synagogue that day heard what Jesus had to say, they all went, yeah, that makes sense to me. I never saw it that way before. You know, they really do have a wrong understanding. These traditions about the Sabbath, maybe we don't need all of them. That makes a lot of sense, Jesus. But his opponents didn't think that way at all. Look at what they responded with at the end of verse 4. It says, but they kept silent. Nothing they could say in response, right? Well, Jesus will respond. Look at it there in verse 5. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, there's two things that grab our attention in verse 5. First of all, it's the anger of Jesus. We're not used to seeing Jesus angry, are we? Matter of fact, there's only a couple times in the New Testament where it mentions Jesus being angry. And this is one of them. And what made Jesus angry? He was angry at the hardness of their heart. Their own religious traditions had built up, as it were, a callous over their heart. And they'd become hardened in their hearts towards Jesus to where they could look at him. And they could look at the power of Jesus and know that Jesus had power and know that Jesus could do great things. Yet at the same time, their hearts weren't soft towards Jesus and open towards Jesus. And when Jesus saw that hardness of heart, he became angry. You know how hardness develops? By constant friction. It's summer now, and you know we're in the midst of the time where we go barefoot more, or at least we did when we were children. And you remember how that goes. At the beginning of summer, you step on the smallest little pebble, and it hurts your foot. You know, and you're kind of tiptoeing around because your feet are tender. They've been in shoes all summer. Excuse me, all winter. But then, by the end of the summer, you can practically walk on broken glass because you've been walking around and you've been going to the beach and the sand's hot and you build up this callus, you build up this hardness to your feet. You're not a tenderfoot anymore. It's very hard there. When a person pushes away Jesus and rejects Jesus time and time again, there's a hardness there. There's there's a, a callus that's built up. And I think what angers Jesus as much as anything isn't so much that the hardness is there, but that it's so unnecessary It didn't have to be like that. They could have turned to him. It was up to them. They could have turned their hearts towards him. They had full opportunity, but they didn't. They hardened their hearts. But notice, it's not pure anger. Jesus just isn't fuming here. Look at it there in verse 5. It says, he looked around them in anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. That grief there shows that, yes, there's an anger, but maybe there's anger with tears rolling down the face of Jesus. Because he's grieved at the same time. There's a sorrow and there's an anger there all at the same time. And if you notice something here as well, you you notice the situation where, well, Jesus is just at this place where he simply, he simply wants to get through to these people any way that he can. 
And yet they're resisting him time and time again. Now, if you notice here, Jesus says the second thing that really catches our eye here in verse 5, that's when Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. Well, when he said to the man, stretch out your hand, he was telling him to do something that was impossible to do. If your hand's paralyzed, how do you stretch it forth? You can't do it. You can't stretch out your hand if it's paralyzed. But Jesus told him to do it. And so what did he do? Well, he didn't argue with Jesus. He didn't say, now, Jesus, look, why don't you first heal my hand, then I'll stretch it out. He said, no, I'll do it. You command me to do it, I'll do it. And so he stretched out his hand, and Jesus made it whole as the other. And you can imagine how exciting that was, how excited everybody was. You know, when God does a healing work, everybody gets so excited, and rightfully so. I had such a wonderful story about somebody who just, God touched them and healed them so marvelously. Several months ago, I heard about this lady. I I was there at a a one-day conference at a place and speaking with this lady that I've known for quite a while. And and she was telling me, and she was very sorry, she was telling me that she had been diagnosed as having MS. It's a very difficult thing because there's a history of it in her family. And, you know, all she has to look forward to is this degenerative problem that's just going to get worse and worse as the years goes on. And she's already losing some of the muscular control and part of her body. And it's just very discouraging. And, oh, it's just, our heart was breaking for this lady when I heard the news. Well, and there was another pastor there. And he could see that I was very discouraged about something. I was down about something. So he asked me what was up. And I said, well, you know, this is what happened. This dear friend of ours, she... She just told me that she has MS, and he said, well, let's go pray for her. And so we went over, and the lady was embarrassed. You know, she didn't want to have a fuss made over her and such, but we prayed for her, and we left it at that. Well, many weeks later, we heard through some other friends of ours here at the church who know this lady as well, that she went to the hospital one morning because the paralysis had become worse and worse, and it was just a critical situation. And, and what she, would she do in the situation? And as she goes out, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor, they do a new set of tests, and the doctor comes back and says, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is you don't have MS. The bad news is that you've got a brain tumor, and that's what's causing the partial paralysis. And the doctor got excited all over again, and he said, this is a brain tumor that's almost never malignant, and it's relatively easy to remove. And so just a few weeks ago, she went into the hospital, and they pulled out a brain tumor the size of a lemon inside of her brain. And they got it out, and now she's in physical therapy, and everything's coming back, and it's a marvelous, marvelous story. And you just wonder, well, you know, was it our prayer for her that day added together with the prayers of hundreds, if not thousands, of other Christians who had been praying for this dear woman and the whole situation? You say, you don't know. Who knows what's happening? But you do know that in this regard, it was just a marvelous, marvelous healing work, and you get excited when you hear about it. So I know that the man who had the withered hand, he was excited, don't you know? And you know, the crowd at the synagogue, they were excited. And you know, Jesus and the disciples were excited, but not everybody was. Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now that's a funny reaction, don't you think? He just healed somebody, we'd better kill him. Very strange. But do you see why Jesus was so angry at the hardness of their heart? Because their hearts were so hard that they could see the healing power of Jesus right there in their midst, yet at the same time they would pass it by. They would pass it by, and their response to seeing the spectacular power of Jesus at work was to say, well, we should kill him. We should plot the murder of a godly man. He never sinned against anybody. 
will plot his murder. And if you notice something else about this, it says in verse 6, that the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians. This is interesting. Because these were two groups that were not friendly towards each other at all. It's sort of like if you were to read in the Bible that a, that a, a, a white supremacist group and the Black Panthers got together and united on something. Because it's like they don't come together and do it. It's just not normal. The Herodians were a political party, and the Pharisees were a religious party, and they always were in opposition to each other. But here, well, Jesus brings people together, doesn't he? <laughs> it's true in a good way. I mean, look at us here this morning. What do we have in common? We're from different nations, we're from different cultures, we're from different backgrounds, we're from different classes, we're from all different circumstances. But here we are together, feeling like a family, because we are a family, and and we have the common ground in Jesus Christ, which is greater than anything else, any other difference that we might possess. Then again, Jesus brings us together that way, but he also brings people together in the bad way. They unite together against Jesus. And that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing. So in the midst of all of this, we see that now with verse 6 comes a very dramatic turning point in the ministry of Jesus. You see, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, now there is officially a plot to kill him. You know, he was a man who did miracles and and went around the Sea of Galilee and and taught people and ministered and preached and, and helped people in many, many different ways. And sure, he ruffled the feathers of a few folk, but what's the problem with that? But now, if we were making a movie of this, that the musical score would get more ominous at this point. Because now, there are people out to kill him for what he's doing. And so we see what Jesus does next here, verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. And he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many had his afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. See, now this is a different phase in Jesus' ministry. Not only now is his fame and his celebrity there on a local level, but now people are coming from distant regions to come and hear Jesus. And now, while the audiences of Jesus before may have been in the hundreds, now they're literally in the thousands. Maybe 10,000 people at any time crowding around Jesus. And there he is, he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're pressing about him and they're pushing him in. And he has no room to speak to anybody, much less to really help anybody. Keep a ship ready so I can get in the ship and go on the water. And then I can preach to the crowd from there. But you see, Jesus is becoming more and more well-known. The crowds are flocking to him. Although we have to say that sort of the impression we get from these verses is that maybe they're not flocking to him for the best of reasons. Maybe it's more just for what Jesus can do for him than for who he is, which is a fine reason to come to Jesus for what he can do for you. But it has to go beyond that. You know, the same crowd that looks at what he could do something great for me. That same crowd is very fickle and It's not long until that same crowd would be shouting, crucify him in another time. And so here Jesus has this popularity from the crowds, and it's a very critical turning point in his ministry. 
You see, you've got the religious leadership, and he's offended the, the traditions of the religious leadership, and they're plotting his destruction. And the political leadership, the Herodians, they don't like him either. He's uh, rocking their boat, and so they want to kill him. And the great crowds are following him, but they seem to be more interested in, in, in the spectacular things, not the spiritual things, and they can be very quickly turned against Jesus. And at this critical time in Jesus' ministry, what does he do? He picks men to pour his life into and to train and to raise up for leadership. Look at it here, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. At this critical point in Jesus' ministry, what did he do? He Well, according to Luke chapter 6, which kind of fills in the details here, it tells us that Jesus did this after spending an entire night in prayer. And after spending that whole night in prayer, Jesus went up, and after that mountain, he came back down, and he chose his disciples, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 from among them. I want you to know that in one sense, there was nothing more important in Jesus' three years of ministry before the cross than what he did right here. Because these men would carry on what he started. And without them, the work of Jesus would never extend through the whole world. And so how did he choose them? What he chose them according to the will of God. Look at it there, verse 13. He called to him those he himself wanted. Why was Peter chosen or John chosen or, or any of the other disciples? Why? Because he wanted them. God spoke to Jesus' heart. He said, well, I'm... I'm going to choose that man. The the father whispered into the heart of Jesus. He sought the father's will. And said, that man, that man, that man. And he chose them, chose the ones he himself wanted. You notice something else here. It says, very interesting. At the end of verse 10, it says, and they came to him. I said, I want you. And then they came. Well, now, which was it? Why were they really the disciples of Jesus? Was it because he chose them, or was it because they came to him? Well, yeah, the answer is yes. It's both. I mean, yes, he chose and they came. You say, well, which one is more important? Which, which one? You, tell me which one's important. They're both important. He chose and they came. And that's how it is with us. He chooses and you come. You may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, am I really chosen of God? Did God really choose me? I mean, maybe that's how God does it. You know, he, he's up there in heaven and, you know, he just does the daisy thing. With it. He loves me, he loves me not, and he's going through the human race that way. Then I don't know, am I one of the ones that he loves? Am I one of the ones that he chose? And I don't know, am I, am or, am I or not? God hasn't informed us exactly who the chosen are. He hasn't put a big yellow spot on the forehead of the chosen. He hasn't identified them any other way except for this. We know the chosen because they choose him. Do you want to be one of the chosen? Then choose him. Well, I don't know if I'm one of the chosen. How do I know? Choose him. (laughs) Now, here's the great thing. The Bible says, if you choose him, he will in no way cast you out. You say, well, what if I choose him and I'm really not one of the chosen? (laughs) Don't worry about it. It doesn't work like that. You choose him and you'll know that you're one of the chosen. 
And so here it was with Jesus. He, he called to them and they came to him. If you notice, what did he call them to do? Look at it, verse 14. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. That was the first job of a disciple, to be with Jesus. Now, do you know what a disciple was? A disciple was a student, but not a student in a classroom sense. A disciple was a student in the sense of being an apprentice. And how does an apprentice learn his job? By hanging out with the master, with the expert. You know, if you're an apprentice plumber, how do you learn it? You hang out with the plumber, and he teaches you it as he goes along. This is how you do this, this is how you do that. That's how you learn when you're an apprentice. Friends, you realize that that's how we follow Jesus. That's why we're his students. That's how we do it all. We stick with Jesus. We learn from him. You're his disciple. You're his learner, his student. And there's a personal attachment that the disciple has to the master. It's so precious. So if you notice here, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Secondly, verse 14, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. If you notice, that's pretty much what Jesus did, right? He said, I'm going to train you to do what I do. And that's what he did. He poured his life, he poured his ministry into these men so that they could pour it into other men and that they could pour it into other people and people beyond that. He said, that's how we're going to do this. You're going to learn what I do and then follow after me in my footsteps. I don't know if you want to be a disciple or not. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to do the things Jesus did? Then Jesus said, you come alongside me and be my disciple. Learn of me. Come and be with me. Now, you're wondering if you're qualified for this. Maybe Jesus doesn't want someone like me to be his disciple. Well, let me put your heart at ease here. Verse 16 Let's take a look at the collection of guys he chose. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandres, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Well, here you have a listing of the twelve disciples. What I think is amazing is we don't know a lot about a lot of these men. Their fame is reserved for heaven. We don't know much about many of them. The ones we do know about, we know that they aren't necessarily all that spectacular. I mean, we look at John, the apostle of love, this great man of love, wrote the spectacular things about love in 1 John. Well, Jesus called him one of the sons of thunder, probably referring to his anger, to his ability to have an outburst like thunder. Take a look at these other guys. Peter, well, he's up and down in his relationship with the Lord all the time. I like the guy here he mentions here, uh, Simon the Canaanite. Canaanite's probably a bad translation. It has nothing to do with geography. It's actually the Hebrew word for zealous. It identifies Simon as a member of the radical zealot party. This man was a revolutionary. So if you notice, at the beginning of verse 18, you have the mention of Matthew, who was a tax collector, a collaborator with the Roman government, and then you have a, a lifelong enemy of the Roman government. Jesus said, I want you guys both to be my disciples. Why don't you be roommates and bunk together, Jesus probably said. He put all these guys together. Now, I think it's amazing, amazing about this group is how unlikely it is. Why would Jesus choose a group of people like this? 
They're not prominent, they're not wealthy, they're not famous, they're not particularly talented, they're not particularly educated, they don't have prominence. What is Jesus? Why did you choose them? Because he knew what he could make of them. That's why. He knew what he could make of them. It's not how we often like to choose them. I wouldn't have chosen 12 disciples like this. You know, first I would have gotten three or four guys who are theological experts. You know, this is the religious business. Let's get some guys, PhDs in theology. You know, they could answer the tough questions. And then get a couple public relations guys. You know, smooth talkers who could help settle things out, you know, when things get rough out there and there's some kind of contention or problem. I'd get a couple guys who are logistical experts. You're moving from city to city. You need hotel arrangements and meals and all that. Let's get a couple guys like that. I'd get a couple guys who were just plain loaded with money. Because this thing needs some financing to underwrite, right? So you get a couple fat cats and put them there on the board, and you know, you hope they'll open up the wallet. And then finally, I'd get a couple of guys, maybe fill out however many I had left, with big, strong bodyguard types. Because there's people out there to get me, and I need somebody to watch my back, right? Jesus ignored all. All of this, all of this. And he picked the most unlikely group of people. Just like us. Now, if there's any unlikely person, and we finish with this this morning, it's in verse 19, where it mentions Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Why? Why, Jesus? Why did you pick Judas? You know, again, the Gospel of Luke tells us that he spent all night in prayer before he chose these men, and you wonder how many hours he prayed just over Judas. Why did he pick him? Well, it wasn't because Jesus didn't know how he would turn out. It wasn't that Jesus said, well, he's got potential, I'll take a chance on him. Not that at all. Later on, Jesus said that he knew that one of the disciples was a devil. It wasn't because he had no others to choose, no. There were other people following Jesus, and he could have chosen one of them. No, he picked Judas. It wasn't because he wanted somebody just to be an example of bad things around him, because really Judas wasn't an example of bad things up until the very end. He was probably the most highly respected of all the disciples. Level head, smart guy, handles the money for the whole group of the disciples. Look, he's a sharp fellow. No, I think God has something to show us in the selection of Judas. Jesus picked Judas, and it was no mistake, knowing all the time what Judas would do. The same time, Jesus could look at Judas and say, you're going to betray me. You're going to set in motion events that will make an effort to destroy me. But the work of God in his hand on my life cannot be destroyed. You cannot ruin this. This is of God. You know why we need to hear that? It's because sometimes we have people in our life that we think betray us or hurt us or turn on us or wrong us. In a figurative sense, they're like a Judas to us. And sometimes we agonize over this. Lord, why did you allow this person? Why did you put this person in my life? Why, Lord? Well, there can be many reasons, and I can't presume to tell you them all, but I can tell you that as much as anything, one of the reasons why God has allowed that person in your life is to show you that no person can destroy God's plan for your life. If Judas couldn't do it for Jesus, nobody else can do it in your life. 
No, if God's plan in your life is ever going to be derailed or sidetracked, it'll be your own doing. It won't be somebody else doing it to you. And isn't that a liberating thought? Don't you need to be set free from that this morning? Knowing that God hasn't put your life in bondage to somebody else. He hasn't. And even though somebody might think that way, it's not true. God set you free. And he's given you liberty with who you are in Jesus Christ. The other great lesson that we know when we think about Judas is we wonder why did Jesus choose Judas to be his disciple? Probably a better question is, why did Jesus choose me? Well, he knows what he can do with me, with you, with each one of us. But it begins with us following him, saying, be my disciple, excuse me, be my master. I will be your apprentice, Lord Jesus. And that's a heart he wants you to bring to him today. So why don't we pray together about these things that we've seen in the life and the ministry of Jesus this morning. And as we pray, I'm going to give an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who you want to become a disciple of Jesus. You want to follow him. And maybe you've never made a commitment like that before. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to that invitation. So let's pray together right now. Father, we've seen so much in your word today, and we need it to work in our hearts and to sink deeply. We don't want it to be like the seed that, that falls on the ground and, and it's quickly plucked away by, by the working of the enemy. No, Lord, we want it to go down deeply in our hearts and to bear fruit. Now, Father, we pray in particular this morning that you would help us to be set free from our religious traditions and to walk in real freedom and liberty before you and to know that you choose us and you call us to follow after you. And Lord, that when you do that, you, you make sure that, that no other person can, can destroy or defeat our life, our walk with you. Father, I pray that you give us courage to follow you in this bold way that the disciples did. Lord, right now, I I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who needs to make a decision to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, maybe they've never really seriously said, I want him to be my master and I'll be his apprentice. And Lord, lead them to that place this morning. And I pray that you'd move upon their heart to make that decision right now. Friends, while everybody in here is praying and heads are bowed and eyes are closed in reverent prayer, if that's you and you want to make that kind of decision for Jesus Christ, the first and most important thing you need to do is tell God you want to make that decision. Talk to Him right now in the quietness of your own heart. It's a thing you do in the secret place of your heart before God. So tell Him that. But it's not only a secret thing. It's something also that Jesus wants to be public in your life. Jesus never called for secret followers. If that's you this morning and you want to make that kind of call for Jesus Christ, would you just raise your hand so I could see it and pray for you. And it's a public demonstration of your decision. God bless you and you. Anybody else here this morning want to make that kind of declaration? I want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Bless you. Anybody else here this morning? Father, I pray for every upraised hand and and lifted up heart before you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would move in their lives to draw them deeper and deeper as true disciples of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would take away the things in us that that compromise our discipleship and that we'd really become apprentices of Jesus. So move in us and among us, Lord. Pour out your Spirit upon us, God, we pray. This morning in Jesus' name, amen.